Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. I say yes to opportunities. I don't close the door. I don't wait for somebody to hand it to me. It was never something I thought was going to be handed to me. I always knew I had to work for it, and I've been there ready to say yes. Success is about talent and hard work, but it's also dependent on being open-minded and ready for anything. This industry is a roller coaster. Being an entrepreneur is a roller coaster ride. Working in a lot of industries is, but certainly retail with so many changes, you have to be up for that challenge. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. The fashion industry can be a push-pull between the creative side of the business and the business side of the business. It takes an intuitive and bold business innovator to merge those two visions and lead brands into the future. Today, I'm sitting down with Sandra Campos, a board member, three-time CEO, and two-time entrepreneur and advisor. Throughout her career, she's built global lifestyle brands, and she's been instrumental in turnarounds, digital transformations, and innovative marketing campaigns, as well as international expansion as a technology-focused operator. She's the only independent board director at Fabric, a modular and headless commerce solution. She's also a board member at private equity-backed Daniels Jewelers and Big Lots. Her retail career has included being CEO of Diane von Furstenberg, president of a portfolio of a billion dollar contemporary brands, including Juicy Couture and division president at Oscar de la Renta. As an entrepreneur, she created the first teen celebrity brand management company in partnership with fellow Latina, Selena Gomez. Together, they launched Gomez's first lifestyle brand called Dream Out Loud. Sandra is an advocate for Latinos and recently launched Latina Disruptors, an event highlighting and honoring entrepreneurs. She has received numerous awards, including Top 100 Latina Leaders by Latina Magazine, ALP's Most Powerful Latina 2020 to 2022, Top Women in Retail, and 2019 Top Leaders in Business by Hispanic Executive Magazine. Let's enter the arena with Sandra Campos. I grew up as a first-generation Mexican-American kid being born in California, but really raised in Texas, first in El Paso and then in Grand Prairie, which is a small town between Dallas and Fort Worth. And I grew up with two parents who were entrepreneurs really out of necessity because having moved to the U.S. as teenagers, they didn't know the language, they didn't have a lot of education. So the resources and the contacts obviously weren't there. They didn't have mentors or role models. So they were really entrepreneurs and trying to figure out 
how to navigate life with six kids. So one of the things that they did was, you know, like a lot of other immigrants, as you come in, you move in with the families, extended families, and what they're doing, that business ends up somehow becoming your own. And the family business was tortilla factories. So my father ended up starting a tortilla factory. We went and lived in El Paso learning from one of his uncles, moved to Grand Prairie to start his own factory. And my parents were involved in the tortilla business. And so for the amount of time that they had the business, I worked in the business just like several of the older kids. When I was 10 years old, I was working in the factory. And one of the more difficult, quote unquote, challenging jobs, which you had to have some experience. And so clearly I was working there for a while and I was packing a tortilla, eating a tortilla, Packing and eating and packing and eating and all day long. I think overall what I see now and I've seen as the years have gone on is that entrepreneurial spirit, the knowledge and understanding of what business takes, not only from the production manufacturing, but also we had a retail store in the front. We had the warehouse in the back. I was working in the back with the truck drivers when they'd come pick up the boxes. So all the logistics pieces, it was just there. Now, it wasn't my goal when I left Texas to pursue the retail fashion industry. It wasn't my goal to to work in anything that my parents had done. But it was really them as role models because they had been able to come to this country and learn something new. You mentioned kind of leaving and getting into retail apparel and fashion. How did that start? How did you kind of get into that in your first few jobs? I literally sent one resume to a company in New York and one resume to a company in LA. And I got the first interview in New York. I had never been to New York, had no idea, had no contacts, nothing, flew in for an interview, got the job, two weeks later moved. And I was literally 20 years old and moved to New York City without knowing what a taxi was, had never been around it, didn't have a lot of exposure to any big city, anything. But I had a job and my job was paying a whopping $17,500 a year. And that's what I moved to New York City to do. So ultimately, I couldn't just work in that one job. I had to have three jobs for the first three years. So it all ended up being around retail. And I was working on the wholesale side, working on the merchandising side, working on the buying side. I was also working in a retail store on the weekends, seeing the customer side. And then as my career kind of progressed and and I moved from one company to the next company, I was able to be a part of companies like Donna Karen when DKNY was launched. And that was the first time that there was that bridge line in department stores. And so we were traveling, we were visiting customers, we were doing seminars, we were doing fittings, and it was just a very, very different world. But at that point in time, you were able to kind of go across functions and spend some time learning about every function so that you had a sense of what goes on in back office operations, what goes on at the retail store level, what the customer says about it, putting it on, what are you actually trying to sell, and how those skills really help you become a more well-formed executive. My DKY experience was the first time that I had a band of women that I was working with, and we were all in our early 20s, and so many women came out and were so super successful from that, from Paula Sutter, who was the first CEO, president of Diamo Furstenberg, and took that business from two million to hundreds of millions. And uh, Abby Held, who started her company, Cuba Handbags, had a great exit with that handbag business. And then Bridget Klein, who became the CEO, the first CEO of uh, Tory Burch and took that business from zero to many, many hundreds of millions. So there's, we had a lot of great learnings. We had a lot of great mentors and people who just put us in the seat, gave us access in the room and told us to go out and get it done. Sandra, what do you think in your own case, what skills do you think you have 
that kind of made you move up the corporate ladder relatively quickly. What's your superpower in that area, do you think? Well, one is tenacity, for sure, because as you know, this industry is a roller coaster. Being an entrepreneur is a roller coaster ride. Working in a lot of industries is, but certainly retail with so many changes, you have to be up for that challenge. But there's there's a friend of mine, Phyllis Newhouse, who said something about me recently, and I think this probably embodies who I am. And she said, I am not a person, you know, you're not a person that sits around and waits for the coach to call you into the game. I'm jumping up and down saying like, I'm ready, let me in. And that's probably been me throughout the time where I say yes to opportunities. I don't close the door. I don't wait for somebody to hand it to me. It was never something I thought was going to be handed to me. I always knew I had to work for it. And I've been there ready to say yes. Yeah. And then how did the CEO job at Diane von Furstenberg come to you? So like many things in life, and I just mentioned the word access, I think access is really important. And you mentioned networking and don't burn a bridge. And I was the president of six different brands that were part of the contemporary consortium at Global Brands Group. One of those brands was BB. BB, I had hired a creative director whose name is Nathan Jenden. And Nathan was Diamond Furstenberg's creative director for 10 years. And they were very close. He was, he's an excellent creative. And Diane had approached him. He was probably a year, year and a half into our partnership. And we had gotten along really well and had a great team rapport. And he had come to me and said, you know, Diane wants me to come back and she's going to relaunch the business again. And I said, you need to do it. It's a great opportunity. And he said, yes, but you need to come and meet her. So because I had that connection with Nathan, because he and I had a great rapport and he had such a well and long established relationship with Diane, he made the introduction and I went and met her. I had a very different expectation before I walked in the room. I walked in just assuming, well, you know, she's been around for 40 plus years. It's a business that's had its day and there's been a lot of changes and she might not be as modernized or in her thinking, but I was actually completely wrong. She's very modern. She was very innovative. She knows so much and wanted to make so much happen. That was about the modern millennial consumer and that consumer experience from a digital perspective. So I was super engaged. And after a couple of months of talking, I joined her as a CEO. Running a business like that, you're dealing with so many creative people, but then the other side of your brain has to be looking at the P&L and the balance sheet and margins and all of that stuff. How do you manage creative teams who may not be of the financial mindset when they're doing what they do? How do you deal with it? Well, creatives are very different but they're created for a reason and they're geniuses for a reason. And I've had a few examples within my life just going way back to the Donna Karen days when Donna was very involved in the business and you learned a lot from her. You learned how important the power of the brand and the power of merchandising and what it meant. You understand how important brand is and how important these creatives are in terms of maintaining that DNA and that you need to give space because that's where the future of, of this product lies is in these creatives. You can have the business you can have the data, but ultimately you need somebody with the creative resources. When I was the president of Juicy Couture, I brought in somebody who had never been a creative director before. She was a 28-year-old Hollywood stylist, Jamie Mizrahi, and she came into the role for the reason that I wanted to recreate the brand, revive it into the Hollywood brand that it was once before. And she came in and completely positioned that brand again, where Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, a lot of celebrities were wearing it. We put it back on the map again in the US. And it was really just letting her go in and what do you see and letting her go her way while 
having that business partnership to kind of steer the ship on the other side. I would say the same thing with Nathan as an example, an extremely creative resource and his mind goes a million miles a minute and they could go speeding off in different directions. And I think what I've tried to do is try to say, okay, how do I take that mindset and how do I channel it into like what you do really well, but like now let's think about this customer and how does that flow into this customer base, you know? And and I had to learn even as an entrepreneur with a business partner, Tony Malillo. He has ATM Collection, his own brand that he's had for now the last eight, nine years as well. He's a creative. And so we had a partnership. It was a, a very, very separated line. He was creative. He was responsible for all of the product, the creative in terms of imagery of the Selena Gomez brand. This was back in 2009, 2010. And then I had all the business side. So we had a very specific partnership where there was no question. He was the final answer in that. So I think I've dealt with it a few different ways where there's that partnership, but I think you always have to find the best of what they do and try to channel it in and give them the business insights to understand who they have to think about when they are creating. Sandra, retail has obviously changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Everyone's talking about digital transformation and AI and all this stuff. How do you define digital transformation in kind of retail? What is it in your in your mind? It really depends on the stage of the business. So I'm doing something now with a retailer that is a 75-year-old retailer, three generations, family-owned, a lot of these owner-led businesses that have gone through so many iterations, but may not have actually transformed their technology and their tech stack. Happens also with some big retailers, right? Retail is probably one of the, in general, has been one of the later industries to be able to really transform from a technology standpoint. So I look at it differently depending on the stage in which they are, because some can be very transformational and be very far ahead, right? Some of the D2C brands that already started out as digitally native brands with technology. But then you have businesses that still have a very old ERP that may not connect to their e-commerce. You don't have a CRM. You may not have a data warehouse. There's so many different aspects of the tech stack. So trying to look at, say, like, what are the real KPIs we're trying to drive? What's the real change that we're trying to make here? What are, what's the end goal? And then work backwards. Like, what's the biggest thing that we need to do? It's always about the customer. So now in terms of digital, it's about the journey. I also sit on the board of Fabric, which is an e-commerce, headless commerce technology. And that tool just in and of itself looking at... Yeah, what at, does that mean? So it basically means agile technology. So you don't have to be stuck with one platform that you can't add anything to or you can't take away from unless you start from the very beginning. You can actually just keep adding and plugging, taking away what you don't need, adding more of what you do need. It makes it much more flexible, which of course, as quickly as technology is changing, we need flexibility, whether it's across supply chain technology, whether it's across your finance technology or your customer technology. There's just a lot of additions. Going back to the original question, it's understanding what the need is for the company. What are the ultimate goals and objectives? What are those KPIs? And what's that technology that's going to help you get there fastest? In 2009, Sander partnered with Selena Gomez to create the first teen management company and launched the Gomez lifestyle brand Dream Out Loud. The widely successful brand was exclusive to Kmart in 14 product categories for six years. The story of this amazing partnership all starts with Sander's great instincts. 
My business partner, Tony Malolo, and I, he and I got together through a mutual contact and we had an idea. We had both been in businesses that were more in the luxury sector. We'd been dealing with department stores like Bergdorf's and Neiman Marcus and Saks. And we looked at each other and we said, oh, it must be so much easier to be in the mass market, right? <laughs> well, I laugh because clearly it doesn't, <laughs> that's not the case. But we had an idea at the time and I had three children who are all in Generation Z. At the time they were little, I only let them watch TV on the weekends, but I would sit down and watch with them and they were watching Disney Channel. And so we had this idea that there was a lack of celebrity brands at retail. And there was certainly not a focus on the teen celebrity, but we knew that the millennial generation was a big change and shift. And we also knew that Gen Z was going to mean something. We just knew this intuitively. We knew that there was going to be these changes. So we, you know, because of my kids and what they were watching, I knew Selena. Tony knew and knows Kevin Yvane at CAA. We went out there with a business plan, business proposal, and they said, great, who do you want? We said, we want Selena Gomez. So she happens to be from the same hometown in Texas, Grand Prairie, Texas, which not very many people know what or where Grand Prairie is. Meant to be. <laughs> so, you know, we connected on that. She was 15 years old at the time. And we embarked on a six-year partnership. We created Dream Out Loud. It was a 14-category brand. We created an exclusive partnership at Kmart. We focused very much so on her, what she called Littles, which is now Generation Z, who is the prime consumer everybody talks about. And over six years, so much changed. We went from having just Facebook to then, of course, every other social platform, from having less than half a million followers at the time to having hundreds of millions of followers. It just a lot changed during that time. And that's really what got me focused focused on digital and transforming retail because influencers became the ones that were actually determining what was a trend. It wasn't the brand or the designers anymore. It was celebrities. And so with all of that change, we, we were able to build that with her because she was also very focused on her customer and her follower and her audience. You know, from a brand standpoint, you can't ask for a better partner than somebody who really cares deeply about that customer. One interesting thing, given your varied background, is what do you think makes a successful entrepreneur versus a successful corporate executive? Well, having been on both sides of the equation, I do think it is very different. And one, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you need to be able to move quickly, think quickly, and be much more flexible and agile in your strategies, in being able to guide and direct a team. And that doesn't always work when you're in a big corporation with multiple layers and you have to have a lot of team consensus. So working on teams, obviously you need to be able to be collegial and work with teams on both sides, whether you're an entrepreneur or a corporate executive. But I find that when I have conversations with people that are looking at their future and, and where would they fit in best, it's like, do you like to roll up your sleeves and really get in there and have like three jobs that you're doing at one time? Because that's an entrepreneur, right? Do you really like to be siloed, have a boss, have a boss above that boss, know exactly what to do to being told what to do and having that A to Z? Do you really like structure? You know, there's a lot of things you have to think about as it relates to structure and flexibility in the way that entrepreneurs have to be able to pivot as quickly as they can. So, I think that's a real difference in terms of personalities and your traits and, and what works and what doesn't work for you. When did you decide to serve on boards? Did people just seek you out to do that? Was that a conscious decision to say, hey, I think it would be good at this and I want to do it? How did, how did you make that decision? 
It's actually interesting because I did not think about it. I had not thought about it at all. I was the CEO of DVF at the time that a banker, Noreen Gillen, came to me from Merrill Lynch, and she asked she asked me to go with her to an event at the LCDA, which is the Latino Corporate Directors Association. And I had a lot of events at that time. I was a single mom with three kids, so I didn't really want to go to another event. So I was very begrudgingly going to this event. But once I walked in there and... I met all these incredible people who have, you know, across sectors, across the country, and in some cases across the world that were there. And I realized that there was this entire community, number one, that I didn't even know about. I didn't know there was an opportunity to be on boards, you know, based on what I was doing and what that looked like in terms of being able to advise and being able to share my experience, my expertise. And so when she invited me to that, I ended up joining the LCDA. The very first call I got was from their suggestion to a recruiter who was Janice Ellig. And Janice called me and she talked to me about Big Lots. And that was the first board that I joined, the first board I got called on and the first board I joined. So it was very lucky. It was very fortunate. It doesn't always happen that way. But I happened to also know Big Lots as a consumer. And I was really excited about it and the value that they have for the consumer and and retail. So it was something that just worked out very nicely. Once you're on a board, what's your philosophy on how you'll contribute? I think there's big differences between public boards and private boards, first of all. So before I actually even walked into that first boardroom, Tom Kingsbury, who's now the CEO of Kohl's, who's a very top merchant, top CEO in the industry, he had called me just for an onboarding call. And he said, you know, I just want to let you know, when you walk into that room, you are no longer an operator. You're going to walk in and you're going to see a lot of problems and you're going to think to yourself, oh, I've got the solutions because that's what we do as operators. You see a problem, you figure out a solution and you put it out there, you put a strategy together and you tell your team to go. He said, that's not the case. You're going to go in to the room and it's their team. It's them as the management that has to be able to define the strategy, has to execute the strategy. And it's up to us to be able to ask them the right questions, to be able to provide some advice to see around the corner. And for the first bit, I really sat back and kind of tried to understand the dynamic of the board. How did they work together? How long had many of them been on the same board together, which is a long time, you know, and then when you see that, you're trying to navigate through, well, where do I fit in? How do I fit in? What's the voice that I bring? What's that differentiated perspective that they were looking for to begin with? And for me, it happened to be with Big Lots, I came in with more understanding as it relates to digital e-commerce, supply chain, that they didn't necessarily have and and really consumer focused. So that's where I started to really feel that that's where I could actually contribute and ask the right questions and be a mentor to the chief supply chain officer to help and also to have a lot of dialogue with. On the private side, PE versus VC, they're very different as well. And so trying to you know sit in those organizations, I sit on a VC-backed board, which is Fabric, which is a headless commerce company. And that SaaS solution is one that's there for retailers and e-commerce. And it's a very different situation as I'm the only independent director. So I come in as the only one with an operator, a retail operator background, and who understands what retailers are looking for, what decision makers are looking for. So I bring a very specific voice to the room that's outside of the investor. And then on the PE side, trying to really navigate through what's the most important thing to them, especially depending on where they are in their phase of ownership with the company, what are the agenda points, what's the prioritization, how do you get there, what are the right questions to ask based on what those metrics are that they need in order to you know, ultimately exit that business profitably as well. 
Yeah. And whether it's a public or private board or even being a consultant or an entrepreneur, you're also a woman and a Latina. How do you bring those two experiences into a boardroom that might be male dominated or, you know, lacking underrepresented groups? How, how do you approach that? It's taken time. And it took time based on experience, based on wisdom, and based on being able to really own what my value prop is, my personal value prop, my personal brand, what I know I know. And at the end of the day, we all have unique experiences and we all are individuals who bring something very different to the table. And if you just go in and own that, then that's what I try to do. I try to own the differences that I have and the questions that I can bring to the table. From a male-dominated industry, of course, retail, even though there's a lot of women, more women working in the retail industry. There's a lot of male oriented and male run and male led organizations. And that, you know, I've, I have to tell you, I wouldn't be a CEO or a board member had it not been for the male allies that I've had in this in this industry. I needed those male allies. They were very supportive of me across the board. And I don't think I would be where I am without them either. So, you know, in part, I try to also look at other examples and other women in particular who work with men really well, who are able to negotiate really well, try to learn from them as much as possible, but also be true to myself and be true to how I treat others and how I communicate with others. Among all the other things that you do, the long list, uh, you're involved with Fabric, as you mentioned, and Daniel's Jewelers. And maybe you can tell us what you do for those companies, what they do. Yeah, so Fabric is a technology company, so it's a SaaS business focused on retail, specifically e-commerce, and it really is about the future. So when I look at it from all the many years of of having to look at cost and capital allocation on technology and where we needed to have system integrators, consultants, when you were replatforming anything, the cost, the time, it was so massive, right? And Things have been modernized so much that that's what Fabric as an example is an end-to-end platform that can actually help so that you don't have to replatform every time you need to plug in something new, every time there's a new solution that comes up or there's new transparency that needs to be included or there's new payment platform, anything that's new that needs to come in there. So as it relates to me being on the board and being a part of that board, it really is making sure that I'm I'm asking the right questions so that they can also think through what does that execution look like? Not only from a go-to-market perspective in terms of the sales cycle and what type of retailers they're looking to be able to, to address and fix and help them fix their problems, but also it's like what's actually needed to be differentiated. Because if you have a product that you're trying to sell to retail, there's a lot of technology products out there. How do you differentiate? How do you actually improve a salesperson's life, a CEO's life, how do you really improve that operating team and what they can do and, and allow them more time for strategy and more time for building the business instead of focusing on the administrative pieces? Yep. And then Daniel's um, is in a completely different business, right? Exactly. So Daniel's Jewelers is actually a 75-year-old third generation family-owned equity firm, but they have been running like a family-owned business for 75 years, you know, like many, many independent jewelers do around the country. They started out in California. They're now in five states and they have 112 stores or will have 112 stores as of next month. They've done a fantastic job of really addressing a working class consumer, which was what attracted me to them. Number one, they're very multicultural, very multi-generational. I love the fact that they had this loyal customer, that they've had so much of a focus on the diverse consumer, because I say diverse and that means 
every way in every way, shape, or form, age, race, gender, et cetera. And I think that that's what's really helped them be successful. And and I, so my point in going in with them and being involved with the, the private equity firm was to help them really accelerate their digital and being able to look at the digital footprint, help them find a way to make e-commerce as relevant as it could and should be for the consumer because they're a consumer. They have more than 80% of them on mobile, right? As many retailers do. We're all on our mobile phone. You're shopping, you're browsing, you're doing everything on your mobile phone. So they need to be able to have an e-com site and technology needs to be updated so that they provide a journey and an experience that a customer can then convert into sales. Well, listen, Sandra, I have one more question for you. Um, and, And I know it's something that you're passionate about. There's a lot of ethnic groups or demographics that are not necessarily that visible in the venture community. And the Latino demographic is part of that, despite the fact that there are some amazing entrepreneurs out there. What do you think the issue is right now, kind of the state of the union in that area? And what can be done to kind of close the gap of getting connections with great businesses and and great uh, financial backers? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question, because I think the first thing is that it's visibility. Access, obviously, for access to capital, access to media for storytelling, access to the network that they may not have grown up with, access to people who can actually help connect them to somebody else. But visibility, and I'll say that because a lot of Latinos don't even talk about being Latina. There are many entrepreneurs who've actually exited businesses, had IPOs that are Latina in background and who don't talk about it. There are many out there that many people, when I talk to them, I say, well, she's Latina. They turn to me and they say, that's a Latina? Because because their last name isn't a typical Gomez, Campos, Morales, or whatever else, they don't automatically assume. So what we need is we need visibility to those that have done it, because there are plenty. We need visibility to the pipeline, because there's also plenty. There are, uh, there's a long line of entrepreneurs who are out there who are dominating, who are excelling, who are outperforming, and they've done a fantastic job. And one of them who's in renewable energy who's raised on her own more than $250 million. Another one who in her third year of business did $750 million in her third year of business and had a $50 million EBITDA. I mean, that's fantastic. Or the founder of TaskRabbit who sold her company to Ikea in 2017 that was a Latina, right? Or one of the co-founders of Looker who sold for $1.6 billion to Google who was Latina. So you've, you've got on and on this list, but I think it's visibility and making sure that we show that there are a tremendous amount of Latinos you know, entrepreneurs who are actually excelling, who are proving that they can actually scale businesses, they can scale profitable businesses. And that ultimately is profitable for whether it's VC, private equity, or any other investor. Staying ahead of the curve in the fashion industry is not easy, but Sandra's range of experience with multiple ventures, brands, and boards has established her as a bold leader in a difficult business. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon to be public companies. Thanks for listening.
I'd like to thank Sandra for joining me today on the show. She has an incredible story that spans multiple generations, and she's continuously doing her part to create visibility and awareness for the generations to come. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.